Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Behavioural Investor. We're up to episode nine of season two. We have the regular Will Waters, the number one fan of uh, Warren Buffett. Um, we also have special guest Igor from Ukraine and New York. So, uh, Will, how are you doing first off? Uh, doing okay. The virus has taken a turn for the worse over here in Doha, so everyone's in lockdown. Uh, 50% on, 50% off uh, in terms of work from home. Yeah, um, but otherwise surviving. Got the first vaccination, so uh, dose number two tomorrow. Okay. Igor, nice to meet you. My pleasure. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction about uh, yourself and, and what's going on in your world? Uh, yeah, my name is Igor. I go by Mr. Zai from uh, 100k to 1m on social media. Uh, it's 8am in New York and I'm on my second cup of coffee. Uh, regarding Corona, it's New York is getting better as the people getting vaccinated, lockdowns, hopefully no more. Uh, but otherwise we're slowly but surely seems like getting our uh, act together compared to, I guess, the other parts uh, of the world. Yeah, here in uh, Brisbane, it's for well, all of Australia. It, we haven't had a lot of um, people getting uh, catching the coronavirus, but there are a couple of hotspots here and there, and um, the government's been getting a lot of criticism lately because they're taking so long to get people uh, vaccinated. Uh, so things are safe in a sense, but uh, they're also uh, quite frustrating in the sense that people aren't able to get um, vaccinated and get it as progressed as what we were hoping we would by this time. It so, seems like you guys did a good job overall. Uh, at least it seems from the posts that I get from like on social media, the, there's no lockdown, there's people partying, having a good time. So you can go to cafes, you can have a good time in Brisbane. I was just went for a walk before we um, started the podcast and I heard a lot of parties in, in neighboring apartments and um, things are pretty much free. The only restriction that most people have is the inability to travel overseas, but that's largely a global problem at the moment as well. So um, I think Australia's benefited to a large degree due to its geographical um, location being so far away from everyone, um, but also they closed the borders quite quickly. So, yeah. It can be hard for people to come home too, like, um, yeah, not to turn this into a coronavirus podcast, but yeah, as someone and as an Australian outside, um, I reckon it might to try to get back onto the the, the topic of this uh, podcast. I reckon it might be easier for me to win the green card lottery to go to the US than to come home to Australia at the moment. Speaking of which, uh, Igor, you have. It seems like I spent at least half of your life in the US. Um, 
although it, I think it's of interest to a lot of people around the world, the process of coming to America, um, uh, what that's like, uh, how hard it is, how easy it is. Um, it'd be interesting to hear if you have any remarks about that, um, including uh, the, um, what the reasons were for your parents to make that decision. I have, I guess, interesting uh, story, but it starts as everybody else's trying to get a better life from where you go from to America. I actually didn't want to come to America. When I, I came here when I was 12, 11, turning 12, and my mom brought me here for just a summer. And my parents uh, split up when I was uh, six, five or six. So my dad went to Israel, uh, mom came to America. And you know, one time, one time she's like, come visit and see how it is. And maybe you wanna later on stay. I was like, okay, summer, that sounds good. Tell my, all my friends, uh, you know, I'll be back by uh, September 1st. And I come here and they tell me, you're eligible for a green card today. You land it, you can get it tomorrow. And my mom basically, uh, like, you staying. You know, after some communication with my dad and everything, make sure that all the parties are satisfied with this decision. Uh, yeah, I was like, I, I don't want to stay. I want to go back to my friends. But, you know, I was really uh, patriotic, even though I don't know why. Uh, in Ukraine, I don't speak Ukrainian. I went to the only Russian school. Uh, so the whole mix back, but yeah, they just like your relative here, uh, you stay here for uh, six months and you basically pick up the green card. Uh, you're ready, you can stay here and live here. So the people just had to take some time. Uh, but it's due to, you know, her being here for a real long time. And it, regarding it's hard that I didn't, I didn't know that I'm gonna stay here, but also my mom, she was she she was not having like a great life. She had actual like those stories that you hear of people uh, coming here a certain way. Let's not call it illegal or improper. You know there was a ways of coming to America, but she did it legit. But you know her own way. And coming, I don't know how much you know about. Uh, there's a section in New York, uh, in Brooklyn, Brighton. This is where all the Russian people are. It's okay, Brighton. Huh? What's it called? It's called Brighton Beach. Brighton Beach, okay. This is where all the Russian people before now, even now, but even before, this is where everybody would come from all other uh, countries to America if you were Russian, Russian speaking. So all the Jews, uh, political things when during the USSR, this is where everybody went. And there was nothing so uh, Russian speaking individuals, they created that little nuke for uh, of haven for Russians. Uh, and she went through some crazy stories of uh, 90s of gangsters, Italians, Russians, mobs, all the crazy stuff. So I had it a little bit easier. But still, you know, it's... 
working, you know, she's having two jobs, uh, sometimes three, me having a job or two, little ones as a 13, what can you do, you know, doing school, no language. Apparently what they teach in Ukraine at that time when it comes to language is nothing. Um, and slowly building from there, getting used to it. As I said, the accent's still there. And still my mentality is also still Russian, uh, but slowly switching to American. But still, I'm, I guess we'll get it on later, but having two different thoughts at the same time, this is where I think um, I can shine for myself. Because I said, I'm, I'm Americanized. I think myself is now I'm already a citizen of America. Uh, I actually had to give up Ukrainian citizenship because they don't allow dual. And uh, that sucked, but you know, it is, it is what it is. But it's funny that, you know, I don't want to stay here when I was 12. And now, uh, as of right now, I wouldn't go anywhere else. This country has a lot more opportunities than other places. Okay, that's usually the way that people sort of express uh, their, their reason for going to America or, or maybe in your case, staying. Uh, it's definitely the basis for my interest in going there. So, yeah, it's, it's nice to hear um, yeah, how, how you got there. And the, the conflict, hearing that you spoke Russian, but you felt to yourself as being a patriotic Ukrainian, um, that's an interesting conflict too. Yeah, I think I just was a kid, you know, because I thought I didn't know any better. I, and I'm really glad that my parents decided on their own, even though they don't really speak to each other. But at the time, they made a decision that America is a better place than Israel or Ukraine. Uh, it's I get to appreciate that as a now as a parent, uh, because now I have a daughter and another daughter do this summer. Good luck. <laughs> Thank you. And also my wife is Russian. So uh, talking about, you know, conflicts, uh, I just don't really get it. I feel like it's really politics. Mm. And if you don't get the hardcore Ukrainians that only speak Ukrainian and they don't really see me as a equal to them, and I think that was, you don't get those a lot in America, a little bit. But everybody else, we're really big Slavic nation. So, and that mentality and that kind of culture, we all have the same thing. And I think that's, it's, a lot of things are just politics. What, what do you mean by that, the Slavic culture? What, what, what's, can you give us a little bit of a nuance of, of what that is? It just different mentality and process of doing things. Uh, so everybody, Russia, Poland, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, different languages, uh, but the core of, I guess, what it is to be for that country yourself, it's really like, uh, there's something called Russian spirit. It was really big when during World War II, the reason um, Hitler wasn't able to conquer uh, Russia. Well, first of all, he went there during winter, like, come on. <laughs> uh, 
but second is there were there were a number, but for somehow miracle, you know, they survived. And it, a lot of people say due to the spirit of the country. And in that Slavic means all those other countries around Russia, they all we all share that uh, I guess stubbornness and willingness to go for what you want. You're, you're, this is useful for me, uh, actually, because my wife is Serbian, uh, so it helps me out <laughs> understanding a, a bit more about her background too. <laughs> I, I think there's another interesting contrast because um, you're speaking about uh, these primary forces, if you like, of, of Russian spirit and um, uh, growing up speaking Russian and, and coming from at least uh, from a West, from Ben and Myers, maybe more Westerner perspective, um, if you'll allow me to uh, uh, talk at least ironically uh, about this, the stereotypes that we have, you've come from, a, uh, at least in our view or the propaganda that we've been uh, exposed to a, a more communist uh, view of things. But then uh, when I sort of uh, met you um, through the FinTwit Summit and on Twitter, you've got this Substack newsletter, um, which is about uh, taking, uh, one method of taking the opportunity that America gives you, which is to make uh, uh, an incredible amount of wealth. Could you tell us um, a bit more about your Substack and, and the, the premise of it? Yeah, so the whole thing started, the whole idea of really why I started is my newsletter, which is from 1K to, um, 100k from 100k to 1m.com uh, is just share my investing, my philosophy, my psychology, everything related to finance, personal finance, and just sharing it out there because, as you say, you know, the culture, communism, things like this, in older generations, it's not that it's I guess I don't want to say they're communists that are in America, but they, they view things differently. So, for example, I view if I make right now within the next five years a million dollars, or let's say you will, you make a million dollars, I will be happy for you. I will not feel uh, greed or some kind of bad feelings about you. Uh, jealousy. I will be genuinely happy and I will maybe ask how you did it and, you know, uh, and things like, you know, positively. In uh, my circle, it's uh, most likely will not be viewed that way, especially that uh, I'm known with more older generation. So, because I, I own my own business and a lot of people, they don't get that. Why would I, first of all, put a big chunk of money in the stock market? Uh, I started my newsletter with 100,000 in stock market and share it on a weekly basis, my ups and downs, full mm. transparency. So if you go there, you will see all my trades, all my uh, stocks and options and share that with the world. First of all, people would think like, why are you doing that? You're crazy. And the second thing would be, oh, he has $100,000. Let me just have some uh, negative thoughts about him and what kind of person he is, because then they psychologically connect dots that are not there. They don't know me. 
They only know me as a business owner, uh, maybe a worker or, you know, a son to my mother. They don't really think broadly. And, uh, some do and those who do, they're basically, they don't care what I do because they're already millionaires or some of them billionaires. And, but the other ones, which is a majority, those are the ones that I went anonymous. So I don't mind having my identity revealed as I'm doing with you guys. You know, I share my name and I just, when I started, I don't know how people would react to it. And I didn't want the negativity to, for kickstart. Have you gotten any negativity at all, um, either on Twitter or even face-to-face? From Amazingly, no. I'm so happy people, well, first of all, I found the FinTwit community, which I don't think you can find without actually looking for it. And everybody's so positive and nice. Mm. Well, this one that I follow and the one that follow me, and a lot of people I also notice, they just, you know, regular folks. Some are anonymous that are hedge funds, traders or investors that don't want to be revealed, but everybody's super nice. And, and remarks, remarks about Warren Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean, <laughs> your tweets always catch me off guard. <laughs> I do notice with your newsletter, though, I did read a, a number of, of the articles that you wrote. You do write very well, and you write in a quite a positive, um, a positive way, uh, quite optimistic in, in a sense and, and open. So I think if you do put newsletters out like that, you're normally probably going to get feedback, which is naturally positive as well. So... Um, keep the positivity going <laughs> you'll probably continue to receive it as well thank you also with this newsletter there's not a lot of a lot of people read it well a lot you know i have a little over 100 subscribers right now but uh, interaction meaning mean like actual interaction is people are not that big generally because I, I, I subscribe to other people's newsletter and usually there's not a lot of actual writing or interaction. I don't know why I feel like people should interact more with each other, giving feedbacks, good or bad. I mean, I'm willing to take if I'm doing something wrong or not the way somebody else thinks I should, maybe I am. I'm trying to keep an open mind to the things that I do. I always try to get better. And if I get always positive feedback, it also creates kind of bias, you know? Mm. Mm. it's funny because there's so much information available there's so much stuff on twitter there's so many newsletters now i thought it was interesting when i read one of your newsletters you had a reference down the bottom to an article it was something along the lines of how people are losing the ability to read um in depth um and it referenced a book called the shallows which talked about how people get exposed to so many different bits of information on Twitter and um, different um, 
bits of media that, that they're actually starting to struggle now in reading at a deeper level and, and contemplating uh, the information that they're getting. Um, I'm just wondering, did you read that article in, um, yourself and did you, do you find it quite ironic that we play in this space of Twitter and, and FinTwit, um, but it does have some negative impacts as well? Yeah, so everything I post on the newsletter, I read, I watch. So I don't just randomly, oh, this title looks cool, let me just put it so I sound smart. So a lot of things I don't put the same week that I would like to because my thing is I want to make sure whatever I put out is something that I myself went through and I think that's useful. Uh, regarding information, I think this is... Uh, the saying is sort of, you know, two-edged sword. So with all the available information, we all can communicate with each other. We all can share. Everybody has an opinion. If everybody has an opinion, that means there's a lot of noise. I'm sorry, but most of us, and a lot of times I'm probably the first one to say I do have not useful information at the time for somebody. So you as an individual have to be able to find what is useful to you. And for whatever reason, for me personally, I'm able to uh, pick and choose the bits that I find useful for myself. So there's a lot of noise, but able to, I guess it's now could be a skill for the future generations to pick out useful pieces and not the junk that before it was on TV, like the talking heads. And now it's pretty much everybody, especially with Twitter, they're having now spaces. Fintwit uh, will probably not like this, but I feel like too many people have too many opinions about things they don't, don't really know. Yeah, there's no editing that goes on. Anybody can be their own publisher now. Like that's because I used to habitually follow everybody back that followed us on Twitter just to like participate. And, you know, everybody's out there to try and increase their followers. So I was trying to, you know, also in, in, uh, as part of having a good spirit, um, uh, follow everyone. But yeah, after we got, we got up to 500 and there was nothing useful that was coming through. So I think I, I responded or, or you, res you responded with a whole bunch of, um, you did like a follow Friday uh, tweet, I think. And from that, I started to, um, I basically tried to turn our account into a feed for people who were security analysts, essentially, hoping that, you know, um, uh, what was that guy? Um, uh, Roaring Kitty, he was the one that did the GameStop. Somebody Gill, Keith Gill. You know, hoping that um, everybody that we followed would be someone like him. Uh, so, yeah. That's that. follow, follow Friday. So tell us about Follow Friday. What's that? Well, I'm, I'm new to FinTwit, but Follow Friday is basically you put out the tags of people that you follow as of right now that are useful to you or helpful or somehow you think others would benefit. 
So you basically put a bunch of tags and uh, your followers, fo followers will see those tags. So the idea is they will click on them and if they like, they will follow. So you kind of get follow for follow, but all of only things that you, of people that you really think is useful. And um, going again about following everybody, yeah, I would love to follow everybody that follows me, but I realize it just makes nose. Like some people don't post at all. And some people, they, I guess, like what I do, but what they post, uh, at least what I see in the feed, it has nothing to do with investing. And I, I just wanna make sure that my circle is really of things that are beneficial to investing. What do you think? You've got quite a. You've only been on Twitter for seven or eight months now, isn't it? Right, and um, you, you've actually gotten quite a number of followers now. What's been um, the key thing that you think has produced those, those followers? I started in November, so that's six months. Six. I wouldn't say it's a lot. I think it's really little for me people over like 500 a thousand and uh, and the ratio like you know not follow for follow thing but uh, I just post the things well I start being more active on Twitter on a daily basis and I just post things that are I think are useful and are as authentic as possible on my end. As a, if you think, I mean, thank you for thinking uh, it's a lot, but a lot of people like that I follow, they have over like thousands or 10,000s of followers. And those people actually put out useful things, meaning analysis and breakdowns of companies that maybe they know uh, or they do it more like uh, as a job, this I'm doing partially right now as a, not a hobby, but this is secondary to my actual income. It just happened to be that right now I find a lot of time to tweet, even probably should be doing other things. But I don't know, I just hope that people that read, they like what I do and then they follow me. And a lot of people actually, they follow and then unfollow because I guess they think it's one thing and when they actually read my feeds, it's like, oh, no, I don't like this. <laughs> it's definitely the case for us. <laughs> so sort of talking about following people and um, related to that is around investing heroes and whether you've got any um, sort of, not mentors, but investors that you admire for the way either the methodology that they use or some other aspect about them. So how much are you guys going to hate me if I'm going to go with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger? That's fine. Go for it. Nah, but you know, I don't come from financial background, like zero finance. I think the only thing math related I took in high school. Uh, so where I'm going with this in 2019, I took, um, not a webinar, but actual, uh, 
seminar for somebody, his name is Phil Town. He's a famous uh, value investor, now like going crazy on, on all the social media. But right before the corona hit, he did a free, well, if you get selected a free seminar for his rule one investing seminar. And I was in a part of transitioning from active, uh, from passive to try to get active investing. And, you know, I was like, if I'm going to get this, because the seminar was uh, a few thousand dollars if you have to pay. And I was like, I'm not paying. So I guess that's already where I start being a value investor. <laughs> but he gave it, I got one invitation for free. So I don't know if it's um, if it's legit, because I don't think I get lucky in life that way, but I got a free invitation. And all I had to do was pay for the flight from New York to Atlanta and you know, for the uh, hotel, which I think is reasonable. You know, I cover my own expenses. And I took his three-day course. Uh, then he's, he, we went to his uh, house he had like a dinner for everybody there. And I was really waiting all this time. So I was listening and I was learning, but I was waiting for that pitch to sell me his next greatest idea for, uh, you know, $99 a month for like uh, you know, for three years or something. You know, some pitch that all these guys, they, they give. Uh, and there was none. I came back to New York and there was zero selling all i got sold is on the book that he a little booklet that he gave but that was actually useful information uh, that he was going over uh, during the three days so rather than me taking notes i bought the book for whatever like a few few bucks and that's it and i was like this is awesome and after that uh actually after that i listened to his all of his books so I first went to a seminar and then I read the books. But he really is, you know, follower of Warren Buffett. And this is where I learned about Warren uh, and Charlie. Because until 2019, I had zero knowledge of what active investing, Warren Buffett, or value investing, or stock market as I know it right now is. Wow, that, that, he sounds like a classy guy that he didn't put the hard sell on you. Um, and it's amazing. Not everyone can say they've been to Phil Towns and Phil Towns' house. That's incredible. Well, his property, not in his house. Okay. There, there was a lot of people uh, that were in there. So he did next to his house. He has a horse uh, farm, not a farm, but a place for horses. So next to he did like a shelter for everybody to get under the place right next to the horses. So we got to see his horses and, you know, had some dinner, everybody. It was really human. It was really nice. You know, wow. that's why I was always waiting for that selling pitch at some point and it never came. Huh. Yeah, I remember there was one guy um, in our investing club in Adelaide in Australia, who who was applying Phil Town's method. Uh, so it's interesting to hear uh, another uh, person. 
yeah, I can't, as I, I can't speak for others, so, but I had a good experience. So the, you've gone from so far in your journey from 100,000 to a million, you've gone to 178,000, it seems, uh, according to the latest uh, post in your newsletter. Is that through applying his method alone or uh, something else? Uh, so right now we're at 199, and that's because uh, I added uh, my own 20,000 uh, to what I call a cash pile. So I don't, I can I consider myself value investor, and see with the word value being uh, looking for. You know, buying something for less than it is. Not like, you know, the ratios. But yeah, uh, the reason I started the whole thing is I wanted to see if I can turn that 100K into a million based on uh, the, uh, Phil Town's approach. So buying things with margin of safety. And actually, the whole idea is to start my own fund maybe in five years, five to 10 years. So the newsletter is my track record. And also a me of keeping myself checked in reality if I'm full of myself and I'm not good as I think I can be because I said no finance, just self-taught. And yeah, so just buying things, holding them for a long time. I'm still sitting at this point about 60,000 in cash. So I'm not looking to be what they call, you know, momentum trader. If I have to sit for a year, I'm not going to be buying anything. Mm, sure. I, I, I think I, I should um, address directly my cynicism uh, of what looks entirely, like, like I'm entirely cynical on Twitter, at least, um, to do with Buffett. And I, it, your, your new, well, I'm pretty new to it as well. Ben's the one that's the old hand in finance being a, a chartered accountant. Um, so can I just ask, yeah, I'm sure. sorry. Uh, how long has Ben, so you knew, I'm new. So how long has Ben uh, in the investing world? How long have I been investing? Um, sort of on and off different times. I um, was, I don't even know if I'd call it investing, I'd call it more speculating back in the time of uh, the global financial crisis, so 2009 and 10, and I got burnt quite badly at that time, so I lost a lot of money. And because of that, it was quite traumatic. I um, got out of the stock market I stopped investing and I got into property investing. So real estate here in Australia and mainly been focusing on that, but just over the last, um, let's see, probably last year and a bit, well, Will and I did a course together through Stanford University, an online investing course, uh, a value investing one through a guy called Professor Kenneth Marshall, um, it's a 10 week course, um, got reinvigorated and interested in it. And so um, over the last couple of years, we've been doing some value investing, researching companies, um, analyzing them. And 
and investing in them that way. So, you know, you, in theory, going back to sort of the late 2009, 10 period, so I've been, been investing since then, got really badly burnt, unfortunately, so moved into real estate. Um, but in the last couple of years, just been trying to apply that, as you say, value investing methodology, something more rigorous and um, methodical and, and more um, analytical in an approach than what I was doing in the past. Um, so. Yeah, and, and it should be said that the course that we did and the textbook we studied um, does basically reflect um, Buffett's and Munger's method and David Dodge, Benjamin Graham, etc. And so I, you know, I have no issues whatsoever. I think nobody can possibly have any issues with buying something, buying a 30 cent dollar, you know, which is why I've been talking about Ishbank, for example, this dominant private Turkish bank, because it's a 34 cent dollar at the moment. Um, I think someone like Buffett, uh, you know, uh, might prick his ears up. But the only, uh, similar to your um, uh, attempts to not be naive when you went along to Phil Town's property, uh, expecting a sell, I, I don't want, and nobody I don't think wants to be naive, especially when your money's involved um, in, in, you know, your encounters with methods and people in, in this space. And the, the, the basis um, for some of my cynical, cynical comments about Buffett are that I, I don't believe there's enough awareness um, for the basis of some of his performance at least, which is that it's not necessarily just uh, gentle little moats that he's looking for. He's looking for full-throated monopolies and a lot of his profit comes from that. So, um, but yeah, maybe I should be um, maybe a bit more, uh, less, less thick on the, the cynicism and more just frank about, uh, about that. Anyway, I just want, I felt that I needed to make that comment because it's coming up. <laughs> With your investing, Igor, do you, because I'm seeing on your newsletter, you do a bit of options, uh, option trading as well. Um, but with regards to your main portfolio, do you go into ETFs and index funds as well, or is it just pure play stock um, companies? So I've fully switched to from ETFs. So I should start that about, I started the whole investing thing maybe about, 2017 when Acorn came out, yeah, uh, changed. Yeah. So then I switched to Betterment, Wealthfront, all ETFs. And this is like with Phil taking his course, fully changing my mental way of thinking about investing. I fully switched to companies. So, I mean, I have my uh, retirement account in ETFs, let me put it this way. So right. I, I don't believe having all eggs, I guess, in one basket because I don't think I'm that smart and right. what I'm could potentially not be successful. I could, for whatever reason, on Monday, lose all my money. Potentially, you know, anything's possible. I'm realistic. Um, with that said, you know, the retirement is fully in ETF. So it's RoboAdvisor uh, Wealthfront. I like them, I use them. And there is ETFs, I don't even know which ETFs they use. Uh, it's really genetic portfolio, but 
I mean, if I'm going to be active, I might as well pick companies and do uh, options on the companies that I know and I um, study rather than go on ETFs. Um, so just related to that, one of the questions that we had was, how do you find investing with no financial degree and how did you devise a concrete framework to select uh, companies and invest in them? No, this question is, I never thought about it. I was just kind of doing things as I always do in life. I, find something that are interesting, I just start digging into it, taking pieces that I enjoy, that I think are useful or beneficial to me. And Phil Town or Warren Buffett's way of doing was a starting point. Uh, and then I just start creating my own models, I can call it. Basically Excel sheet with a bunch of things that I think are useful and that's it. And uh, reading other books, uh, Margin of Safety, um, all, the, all the famous books that you can think of, I read them. I took out little parts. I put them in my spreadsheet and just keep evolving and adding things that I think are useful for me to uh, look in a company that I want to invest in. But other than that, just uh, Twitter has been a good use. YouTube, as a, this is where you find, you pick out little things from others for your own sake. So there's some people that are following YouTube, Twitter, that talk about different companies. And it's my decision to see if this is a company I wanna research or not. And the basic generic uh, filters, I mean, also, um, it's for me, it's a little bit scary that I think I can do something that's usually done by smart people when I don't consider myself quote unquote smart. I mean, I'm, I'm not stupid, but definitely not a genius. But I guess I just, the discipline that I have for myself whatever that is that that's my magic sauce and i just can't really explain it like that i guess that's just the way i am i mean i also own my own business so there's things that i know they work in businesses and that don't like analysts some analysts they never even worked uh jo real jobs i would call them you know not wall street actual you know, I for I started, you know, washing cars and, you know, doing like flyer deliveries when I was little. So now running a business with over 20 employees. And I still sometimes, you know, swap the floors and clean the things. Because that's what, you know, when you have your own business, this is what you're doing. All this kind of experiences, I just try to build off that. What I think is, makes sense to me, logically. Yeah, that's something I've thought about too. It's like, I feel like what I need to do is learn how to write an income statement, balance sheet and cash flow statement. You know, um, because of the training that Ben and I did, 
um, and the hundred odd businesses that I've put through the spreadsheet that I've developed. Um, it seems like, by the way, that everybody on Fintwit, it seems, has gone through the same process. They read all the books, they make their own spreadsheet that's always changing and always developing. Um, so yeah, I, it's, it's funny how I have a lot of familiarity. I can find uh, the, the income statement in two seconds in a 10K, but actually writing one, I need to get that experience. Well, I think, you know, it's, uh, it's job of the, I look at it as being a business owner of a passive business owner of a company. So it's management's job to do all these things. Your job or my job is to make sure they put numbers that are at least make somewhat sense. Because I'm, I'm, I don't have any accounting background. So it's possible that all the companies that are on the accounting is a fraud per se. But the numbers over time, they make sense how they grow or how they don't grow. And as long as this is where you can kind of figure things out, uh, you know, there are people who go in deep value, value investors. That's where you got to know your numbers. Mm. I stay in my, uh, what we like to call a circle of confidence. Mm. Do you ever watch um, Value After Hours, the podcast on YouTube with Toby Carla? I'm not sure if you've seen it or not. You have seen it? Yeah, uh, I, I'm subscribed to them. Now, do I listen to and watch every episode? No, but I do follow them whenever they pick on the subject that I think is useful. So Toby runs, uh, he's got an ETF and it's called DEEP, so D-E-E-P, and you're probably aware of it. It's, um, I don't know too much about it, but it, it does, try to target those companies um, that are regarded as deep value. So they're extremely, my understanding is that they're ex meant to be extremely cheap for their value um, and it's a portfolio of those. Uh, do you know much about that, Will, yourself, um, that, port that ETF? Um, that's a newer one. I am more familiar with the ZIG uh, ETF. But so far as I'm aware, same basic principle um, based on the Acquirer's multiple book. Um, but I guess I've, I've got a follow-on question given that we're talking about frameworks and um, your epic spreadsheet, uh, Igor. So what is a recent investment that you've made um, or didn't make and why did you make that decision? You know, there's... Easier one would be say why I didn't invest. And uh, Alibaba is the reason one that I did not invest, even though Charlie got into it, Charlie Munger, and it seems like all the FinTwit is raving about it. And it, uh, Dogecoin, hmm? Bitcoin, there's just certain things that Again, I'm going back to the whole, I'm not the smartest person, but discipline. There's just things that I think I'm okay not making money on. Maybe I'm not going to make a lot, but compound a little over time, it does uh, snowball. And 
you know, I decided um, sometime this year in the beginning, I, I'm not going to invest in Chinese companies. I tried to understand. Uh, I got into myself almost a value trap with a stock called Momo. That's a great name for not momentum stock. I think just going lower and lower. And, uh, you know, I don't speak Chinese. Uh, I have the girls who work uh, who are Chinese. And, you know, they just told me a few things that culture is different. And I'm not going to kid myself to think that I can be this great person who figured that it, this out. I'm not. But if, uh, for example, Lilu uh, would invest in something, I would, in China, I would consider looking into it because he's a great investor that know he's in China. He knows what he's doing. So then maybe I can... Lee, Lee Lu. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Charlie's uh, favorite guy. And, but otherwise, you know, I, I'm not going to say that, oh, uh, Alibaba is this and this and this great things because everybody sees that. Everybody reads the same thing. I, I don't understand Chinese culture and don't understand why invest in something that I don't understand. Okay, fair enough. That, that's, that does show discipline. And that uh, you've mentioned the word discipline a couple of times. So this, uh, I think, is a segue into, I guess, the behavioral uh, basis for our podcast and what our, our little project with our uh, contribution to FinTwit, um, which is actually that it's the biggest part of investing, managing uh, your own uh, attitude and, and behavior. So we've got a few questions on the menu here relating to that. Um, I think we'll, we'll start off with, uh, in, in our discussions about setting up the interview, uh, you said that an inspiration for investing is to set yourself and your family up for financial independence. Um, so what inspired you to have this goal? And uh, is that something, uh, the significance, I guess, for investing, uh, of investing for your family, uh, something that helps you with discipline? It's definitely a starting point. Uh, the, what kickstarted it was mainly, I think, my daughter and realization. I don't know. I think I matured around 28. I hit the puberty because for whatever reason, things just start clicking. Like, I got to get my stuff really together and start working on a few things, but really working on it. And one thing was once my daughter was in the project, you know, uh, I was like, I got to make sure that the little one is set for the future and not just the little one, just because maybe she wants to be an artist and I don't want to like take that away from her, her great grandkids. And then I was like, why stop there? What about grandkids? And I was like, okay, how can I do that? And I was like, well, one way is it seems like everybody has become a millionaire by being ETF, a long-term ETF investor, you know, 40, 50 years. And I, uh, this is before I started being active. I was like, I think I can manage just putting money in every uh, month, every two weeks and let it compound. And, you know, the framework changed to what do I do after, like when I'm, you know, 
out. And this is where I thought, I'm gonna try to teach my kids or if they don't want, maybe my grandkids, the things I learned right now. So this were actual knowledge that I'm putting in right now. Hopefully uh, with the newsletter, I can later on look at it and share it. Uh, just teaching what I learned, hopefully some things will stick. And if not, I opened up for my daughter account called um, UTMA. It's basically a fund for kids that they cannot access until 18, but they're the owners. So they pay the taxes. I just contribute until, uh, until 18 or, and then she can contribute to it when she's start working. And hopefully that will show to her that power of compounding. And I realized I don't have to put a lot. As long as, you know, she's turning three this year. There's a few thousand in there. In the uh, next 15 years, that's gonna, as long as America stands where it is, you know, and not something happens drastic, uh, it's gonna compound with the dividends and whatnot. And I hope that I can show her. So I have a few ways of like direction to go with hope and hopeful because I'm not going to make them. Uh, I don't want them to feel like they have to do this, but hopefully live by example to show that this is possible and if they're interested in teaching them. It's interesting to hear um, the approach that you as a father have taken to this what can be a tough challenge, I think, for all parents, which is developing what we believe are the right habits in our children. And, you know, my daughter was born in November and I've gone through exactly the same sorts of uh, thoughts. And uh, in a way, this, this little project uh, with the podcast and interviewing you and everybody else is uh, an information gathering and wisdom gathering exercise um, for myself and, and I guess maybe uh, well, less, less so for Ben, <laughs> given that uh, Ben's actually studied all this at university and, and made the original compounding sheet that was the basis for the first episode of this podcast. Um, but yeah, I, I, I share the same, uh, um, I, I have the same goal. Um, and I liked your point about not wanting to force our children to into this and to make it into a burden for them. Um, what I'm interested in is how to um, maybe for them to somehow introduce it in a way where they see the potential of it? I think the best way, and that's just what I'm learning with my little one in life general, is to live by example and yeah. hope for the best because my dad, you know, um, when my parents split up, I both I wasn't close with both of them, but just knowing what my dad as a human was, like his he never smoked, I never smoked, um, and just this kind of little things that you know you learn about them is like oh okay that's cool like you know being hard worker and disciplined I think that psychologically just slowly drips, and you don't notice it as a kid. But when you grow up, you know, like there's certain things 
that gets fit in there that you think they're the right way of doing and you don't even know that they are. Yeah, that highlights the incredible uh, responsibility and opportunity that we have, have as parents. Um, and, you know, uh, in some ways it's a little bit terrifying, but also, again, uh, filled with potential. Um, so I think leading on uh, in the same vein, uh, you mentioned that you are interested in practicing frugality, but there's also uh, the challenge um, not to be such a miser that life becomes miserable. So how do you balance, um, for example, uh, or providing the example of being responsible with your money through being frugal, um, but also still living an enjoyable life and giving joy to your, your, your daughters? Well, I think to start, everything for me was, I, I learned about fire movement and I thought that's amazing. And I was like, let's do it. And then I tell my wife and she's like, no. And I was like, okay, because I'm not gonna, you know, force it on somebody that does not wanna live that kind of, save 90%, live on 10, and be a millionaire in 10 years. And I figure, what do I need to do in, in order to pursue that goal, but not force it? And I just did some soul searching, I guess, for myself. I realized I don't need things, really. Uh, whatever thing I do need, I buy. It just happened to be that I'm okay with being minimalistic. So I took full advantage of that on me without forcing on them so you know clothes food whatever they want uh, places to go not right now but in generally whatever they want we do it it just they seeing again by example they seeing that i'm doing something for a bigger cause so sometimes they don't push it for certain things uh, but whenever they want something, they go for it. Like we don't have in that sense that they can't have things. But I guess they, it comes that I sacrifice certain things and I'm okay with that because I'm just, that's just the way I am. My mom always makes fun of me for that, for being like so minimalistic, but you know. Were there any things in particular that your wife um, really, uh, didn't like about the fire movement was it um, you know, living on cans of beans nonstop, or was it something else? <laughs> yeah, she just doesn't, and I don't want to put words because we don't really. Once we touch it on that sense, like it's not, you know, I don't want to push it, but it is that idea of the joy of you know little things in the moment. Um, and taking that away for the future, just not everybody understands it. And that's okay, because we're all different, and it's not for everybody. I, you know, I would probably already be a millionaire if I did it. I would probably do a fire movement, like, in five years, living in my mom's spare room or something, you know, not eating anything, putting everything in ETF, and but also I might not ever, even ever come to the idea because if I wouldn't have my wife and my kids because they don't want them. So, you know, you do a trade-off of certain things and 
she doesn't like it, I respect that because it's not for everybody. I think you have to be a certain mentality of way of thinking to be okay on living on um, beans and, you know, things like that. One of the beans things, that <laughs> one of the things that you uh, mentioned um, was about conscious investing and contrasting that to passive or active investing, but what do you mean by conscious investing? Yeah, so I started throwing that term around with a lot of people because it makes me sound a lot smarter than others. And I did have a meaning behind it when I um, contemplated on the idea. I sometimes just, I hope others do too. I have certain conversations with myself in my head and ideas and they sound really smart and great. And then I never put them on paper and then they kind of blurry afterwards. But when it comes to conscious investing, I think it's being, so we have passive where you just put money in and you forget about it. Come back in 40 years, 50 years, you're a millionaire. Then you have active where it's a trading or investing uh, where you watch it every day. You maybe go, you know, bold or gray hair really quickly with a lot of stress and then i call it conscious investing when you like value investing but with the idea of being uh, real with yourself meaning the things that you do you feel them so during uh, last year when covid hit I was being really honest and open with myself with the things that I will and will not do in investing. So I did have some stress, but I also was open to myself of when market was going down, being rational and discussing it on um, how things can, cannot go, what I can, cannot do. And just also kind of going that framework, but also then reflecting on it later on. So kind of trying to take a step from outside of your self and get, understand why you did certain things without justifying that you were right or wrong. Cool. It's, um, I like it. It's, it's uh, maybe we should change the name of the podcast to the conscious investors. I like that better than the behavioral ones. We might just steal your name. <laughs> Thanks. We invest like Yegor. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, I, I think actually there's quite a bit of overlap between your, uh, approach both of you guys approach because Ben I know that you're quite frugal um and we have it's the first time we've really covered the fire movement I, I think we should maybe go into it uh fully in a whole podcast at some point um but this brings up the next question because some people think and we talked a little bit about the extremism that can uh that, that comes up in at least some uh with some fire blog blogins, or, although I do love Mr. Money Mustache um, so you, you said that you prefer to avoid extremism or fundamentalism. Um, 
and that you would prefer to uh, hedge your bets or, or spread things, not put your money at least in one basket, Diego. Uh, so could you tell us a bit more um, about this philosophy? Yeah, I feel like, and that goes for me personally, I take things sometimes too extreme, meaning uh, before family time, I was overworking a lot. Uh, seven days, 10 hours, 12 hours, and nobody made it, make, made me. It just, you know, once I started, I just kind of forget that I into something and keep going. And it's not healthy. <clears throat> and it's also not healthy when you're not doing anything. So when you're having extremes, you know, you gotta find your own balance. And too many people, especially on uh, social media talking about all this, you know, quit your nine to five, uh, start a business, do a drop shipping, some other stuff that they're pushing. And I just realized it's not the way we should. I mean, maybe for some it works. I just realized it does not work for me when you're being extreme about anything in good or bad because any extreme is not good. Uh, and what I came to that is by actually, you know, again, fire movement. It's great, but you have to really uh, cut on a lot of things that you might find really enjoyable. That's extreme. Uh, you might be workaholic. That's also, you might be a lazy guy or a girl who doesn't do anything. You don't, you don't get better. So it's, you know, there's no answer to it, uh, concrete, but I think we all should find what works the balance scale for us. Sometimes it's okay to get on either side, you know, sometimes you work too much, sometimes you are too lazy, but in the long run, you should definitely find what your balance is because you can burn, burn yourself. And I, speak for myself for two years, nonstop, taking multiple projects on. It's not healthy, it's not fun. Sure, okay, and, and I guess um, that's that's one of the appeals of, of investing, that the work can happen whilst you're sleeping, if you get it right. Um, that's one of the things why I got um, slowly over time, maybe by 40-ish, 50, I want to like, even if I don't open my own fund and I'm a terrible investor, I think still having that uh, either passive or investing, just, you know, having money work for you and making money on the money on the money. It's, it's a lot better than working for yourself or on somebody else until you're 60 or 70 and you're not enjoying life. Like just yesterday, I went, uh, my social security reminder that check your stats. And they're telling me that, you know, I can pretty much stop working right now. And I'm 29. You know, I can't take the benefits, but just the idea that I could stop, uh, if something happens, I could stop because I accumulated so much credit, what they call, I work so much. 
I don't know if that's really beneficial. I, I'm sorry, I'm not American, so I'm not really familiar with this social security concept. Could you tell us a bit more? It's basically a government retirement plan that when you hit 62 to 67, the government will uh, pension, I think it's called. And well, I don't know, in Russian it's called pension, but they don't, due to communism, that thing didn't work. Um, <laughs> but it's basically when you hit 65 and you work all your life, the government will now start paying for you, helping you. But what they start doing with every once in a while, and now they're saying by 2035, they will cover 100% of what you're supposed to get. But after that, they will cover 70 or 80%. And that's because they don't have enough money to support everybody. And now they're saying you should have multiple incomes. You know? Okay, so, sorry, but you were saying that you're 29 and the, you checked something and they said you could retire now, or did I misunderstand you? Uh, basically, I can't take the benefits at 29, but the amount of hours that I worked, because, oh, because of every paycheck or everything that you make, the government takes a cut. And that cut is the, the, defined by the amount that you contributed basically, unwillingly, but you contributed to this fund. So like a, you know, like a ETF kind of thing that you do every month, but for the government, and you might never see that money ever. <laughs> but I mean, I get it. Like this money goes right now to older generations. Yeah. Now I'm saying like extremely, you know, I work so much that they're saying basically something happens to me right now because there's also included disability. Okay, sure, yeah. Uh, I will be okay. Hmm. Oh, I guess that's some, some reassurance. Um, I, yeah, uh, on the same uh, track of... Uh, long-term uh, assuring you, yourself and uh, your, your children's and grandchildren's future uh, long-term. Going back uh, to the start of our, our podcast, um, Ben put together a compounding or snowballing, you used the term snowball before, uh, spreadsheet, um, which shows that with a gradual accumulation approach uh, and a modest compounding rate, um, after three generations, so uh, three 47-year uh, careers, so working 18 to 65, you could accumulate a billion dollars, assuming you were contributing 35,000 per year. So this is a large amount to contribute, but maybe more importantly, 108 years is an incredibly long time. Um, do you have any ideas about uh, behavior management staying motivated, staying focused, maintaining discipline um, over extremely long periods. Uh, and also um, maybe if you have any comments about uh, how you might bring about that level of character in your children. Uh, so I wanted to do it in the beginning, but I forgot and I want to feel fancy. So none of, nothing that I guess we say is financial advice. I want to sound like, you know, fancy like that. But 
because people sometimes, I don't know where I'll end up, but you know, just want to throw it out there. Uh, and second thing, I like the spreadsheet, uh, but the numbers, they just, somebody's making, uh, contributing as a child at 18, 30 or $35,000. That's That's 20 years from now. So the, that 35,000 will be reduced by inflation and things. But the idea, that somebody's second child or the first child start because I saw the list is like one parent, yeah. then it goes to the child at 18. Yeah. And I was like, it's quite I hope my child makes 30 grand and I mean, able to contribute 30 grand. Yeah, we, I, I admit um, without hesitation that that's unrealistic. I suppose the only response I can have to that is that um, as you get older, so towards the end of your career, you might more than make up for that deficit. So you might only be able to put in five grand, maybe two grand in your first five years of your career. But the excess above 35, once you're maybe 40 years old, might be, you know, you might be putting in 70,000 yourself per year. It depends how successful you are. Um, but I guess what we're talking about is, or the, like, I totally accept what you're saying. You're not, you're not the first person to make that observation, um, but it's the long time period. It's more what I'm interested in. I, no, but I, um, I just wanted to put out there, but I totally agree with the concept because this is how you can make somebody interested in, because if you're gonna put somebody and tell them, look, <clears throat> in 30, uh, in 100 years, you can be a billionaire rather than in 50, in 50 years, you can be a millionaire it can switch the way somebody will think about something. And yeah, numbers don't, like this don't make sense, but overall the idea is powerful. And I think, uh, especially, again, I'm talking about from America, uh, the idea that I can do, let's just take my uh, retirement account. It's a lot smaller than what I do with the active or conscious. Um, but opening for my child that uh, her own uh, account, her own uh, passive account at uh, zero years, or I guess first month, and her compo compounding those returns, and then having her kid, or maybe two or how many kids she will have, uh, have. I think that's doable. Look, maybe not a billion, a billion, but even if in three generations we get half a billion or a quarter, that's awesome. It's and incredible. It, it's ridiculously, it, it, it's so much more than the average person thinks that they can even have a right to dream about. But I, I just love the simple mechanics and just seeing it there in one sheet is incredibly powerful. But like, because you, you've been going for a while now with your Substack project, um, you want to get to a million. How many years are you expecting to have to do this for? I gave myself five to 10 years. I think that's realistic to see yay or nay. So that's a, a, still a significant period of time. So are you having any issues with motivation? yet 
and what are your plan what's your mechanism i guess to maintain the the motivation so that you can keep doing the business analyses can keep taking the risk with your capital to get to that final goal and how might we apply that in our, our project to get to a, a billion dollars over a hundred years patience and having that end goal and just believe the process and yet be okay that maybe you don't get you know, you don't hit the stars, but, you know, you, you go way up there. So that's just what keeps me, well, first of all, now, because of the newsletter, I am hooked that I have to go because I feel like I would be a phony and people might, not a lot of people, but maybe some people will find it um, not disrespectful, but basically like lying. You know, you, you try something and that might, might discourage somebody uh, that I might maybe hopefully uh, encourage. So I do want to, on many levels, I got myself hooked that I got to go for that five, 10 years and really for myself to see if even I'm able to do so. Okay, so you're saying that um, there's power in making a public commitment. I like that point. Yeah, that was one of the triggers that now every week um, I'm committed to put it there. And because I'm putting on a weekly basis, I got to make sure that I contribute something to the portfolio. Maybe not the same week, but within a month, looking for better stocks, looking for better opportunity, investing, doing that mental analysis, keep working on yourself and because uh, I'm not only putting the portfolio, I want to include things that I think are beneficial from my point of view and my perspective. And because sometimes maybe things I say are not, you know, logical or for some people or make sense. But if I think the thought is useful to put out, I do it. And there's what now over billion billions of people now on this planet compared to before and one or two people maybe find it useful yeah sure well we, we find it useful i, I like that <laughs> we're the two <laughs> yeah. we, we've doubled your your expectation uh, I, I find it useful we, we, i've recently started a sub stack because that's what everyone's doing these days I just had a thought whilst you were saying that maybe we could name it billion dollar behavior um, and we could hold ourselves to, in a public way, behaving how it seems we should um, to reach that long-term goal. So anyway, Ben, you've got- Positive bias to work with. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I like the idea of it, yeah. Um, the second last question we had was, What's the mental hygiene habit that people should develop that's the equivalent of washing their hands? I would, if pick one, putting one to 10% of your paycheck into a passive investment, like ETFs or what, whatnot, because not everybody wants to do active uh, investing, but 
saving up just a little bit on a weekly, bi-weekly, monthly basis, I think everybody should do it because maybe they will not see the compounding right away, but over time, uh, not on purpose, they will see that it compounds. There's a country where that's built in. It's called Australia. Really? Yeah, the superannuation scheme uh, has a default contribution by everyone of 10% of their income. So. Isn't that the same as the 401k in the US? You are not obligated to okay. invest. It's an option. Oh, okay. Option, they don't always take those options. Right, in Australia it's an obligation. It's 9.5%. Uh, some other companies um, have it as high as 17 or 18%. But, um, yeah, it's an obligation here. Uh, good. All right. Finally, uh, until 2000 years ago, the, uh, the Romans, for example, practiced human sacrifice. We, um, no, nobody hesitates in calling that a highness act these days. So what do we do now that 2000 years into the future will be considered highness? First of all, that's an amazing question to ponder on. But I would go with woman, woman's rights or human's rights, because it's not just women, all colors and sexes. I don't know, with having two girls and a wife, it just made me realize how there's just, we need to like speed up the process of having everybody on the same page. So I think uh, human rights and more, you know, like I think to, at least to start with the, our other halves, uh, meaning ladies, giving them as equal opportunities in that sense. Yeah, sure. That's a great note to finish on. Um, I know it's late for you, Ben, uh, and you got to get, get about your, your weekend. I presume you've got all sorts of activities for Sunday. I do have, um, it's nice weather here at the moment. It's not too hot, it's not too cold. So there's plenty to do outside. But thanks very much for your time, Igor. Was there anything else you wanted to close off on or are you happy to finish there? Well, I want to, I don't know if I said in the beginning uh, how much I appreciate you guys for giving me this opportunity because it was, it's a kick that I needed it sort of to go further uh, in the sense that I want to like communicate like this, but I will, I'm more of an introvert when it comes to this, unless somebody drags me. And thank you for uh, inviting me and doing this. Also, you know, follow me on whoever's listening on Instagram and Twitter and my newsletter. Thank you. Do you want to tell people how to, we'll put, put it in the show links, but do you want to just tell people how they can follow you? Well, my tags are everywhere the same from 100K to 1M. You, you, at this point, you can Google it and something will show up with me. 
you'll be this famous guy who's 10xing his uh, capital in 10 years. Right? We, we have to interview you again in, in, in 2031. <laughs> uh, we'll come back. He'll do it in five. If you guys ever, you know, need somebody to chat about something, I'm more than happy to. Thanks very much. We'll have to visit again. All right. Cheers. We'll end it there. See ya.